Welcome to Heartland Church. It is our prayer that as you listen to the following message, you would experience the heart of God for your life. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Now, let's join this week's service already in progress. Turn with me to, uh, let's, let's start in Psalm 73 this morning. Psalm 73. I have been in a passage for weeks now, and uh, just have been going back to it. I love the Word of God. I love studying with the Holy Spirit, because what He'll do is He'll take us into the Word and uh, just take us down all kinds of little tributaries of things He wants to speak to us. It's an amazing thing to be in relationship with the Holy Spirit and His Word. And, uh, you know, Smith Wigglesworth, the great healing evangelist, He had a saying, he said, some people like to study the Bible in Hebrew, some like to study in Greek, I like to study it in the Holy Ghost. Uh, I like to do all three, personally, but uh, I just, it's an amazing thing where the Lord will take us on little tributaries and speak to us, and so we want to go with a little journey with him this morning. So Father, Lord, I'm asking that your teaching would fall like rain, Lord, that you would speak to our heart, Lord, that you would make our hearts a soil that would receive the seed in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Psalm 73. This is the the beginning of book three in the Psalm, 73 through 89. And it's a Psalm of Asaph. Listen to what he says. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So he says, surely God is good to Israel. He's saying "This this is a sure thing. This is a uh, th- this is an established thing that God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And interestingly enough, what he's doing is he's redefining what an Israelite is. Matter of fact, this is the passage that Jesus had in mind when he spoke to Nathaniel and he said, Behold, you are an Israelite in whom there is no guile. You say, How do you know that, Dave? Well, I believe the Holy Spirit showed me that, and you'll see when we get to heaven, I was right. This was the passage that Jesus was, had in mind when he looked at Nathanael and called him a true Israelite. A true Israelite is those who are pure in heart, one who is no guile. And then the psalmist says this, Surely God is good to Israel to those who are impure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my footing, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So it's an interesting way he says it. He said, Surely God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, I almost fell. He's saying, I didn't fit the category at the time. My heart wasn't exactly pure in that moment. And he begins to unpack both what he went through and where it was coming from. And what he takes us on is this little journey of disillusionment that most every believer has gone through. And if you haven't gone through it yet, it's just because you haven't walked with them long enough yet. Because there is a journey of disillusionment, a test of our faith that the Lord will take us through. And this, and Asaph, who wrote this psalm, struggled with this dilemma, this dynamic. But it's not isolated to him, nor is it isolated to this passage. Paul addresses this. Whoever wrote Hebrews addresses this. Some people think it was Paul, I don't. But I think it was Apollos. But whoever wrote it, they address this dynamic, this this struggle in our faith where we're in this journey and we begin to question, God, 
Yes, you're good to Israel. And so there's really three questions that are being wrestled through in this passage. Number one is the question, is it really worth it to serve God? Does God really reward us for seeking him? That's one of the struggles of the psalmist. Number two, he's wrestling with his own identity. Am I really one of those people that qualify to be pure in heart? And number three, he's wrestling with his view of the character of God. So he's, he's, he's wrestling with how he sees God, how he sees himself, and out of that, how he sees the Christian life. And the fact is, every one of us, to varying degrees, have wrestled with those three things. That is the battle for our faith. When Paul talks about the good fight of faith, he's really talking about these three scenarios. We struggle with our view of God. This whole thing known as sin, this whole thing, the fall, came directly out of a lie about God that Adam and Eve accepted as truth and therefore sinned. The serpent slithered up to Eve and said, did God really say? Question the word of God. And then he questioned the motives of God and he said, the reason God told you not to eat the fruit was because the day that you do that, you will be like him. The insinuation was that God is trying to keep the good stuff, the God stuff, the valuable stuff, the stuff that you really need, he's trying to keep it from you. And so if you really want the good stuff, the God stuff, you better take matters into your own hands because God can't be trusted. And that is the foundation of the believer's battle. All sin can be traced back to that root of questioning of God's character. There was a second, more subtle lie, but it's the, the flip side of sin. There's the, the lie about God, but there was also the lie about Adam and Eve themselves, and that was you're not good enough the way God made you. So there was a rejection of God because of his character, a rejection of themselves because they felt like they didn't measure up. And so Adam and Eve felt like they needed to eat the fruit, get something to make themselves better. See, a lot of people will tell you, well, see, the, the sin was that they were wanting to be like God. Well, the fact is God made you to be like him. You're made in his image because we we marred that image. We're still, even, as, even when we were uh, uh, fallen from God, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, we were still in God's image. We were like the lost coin. The coin still had the stamped image on it. It was still valuable. It was just lost and it needed to be found. See, Jesus came as the second Adam in the image of the Father and he, he brought that image to completion or perfection and then God turns and says about his son, he is the exact representation of the Godhead in bodily form. Be ye conformed to the image of my dear son. In other words, be like God. That was your destiny. That was what God wanted to have happen. That's why we've talked about before how in temptation is an insinuation of your destiny. Every temptation that is really tempting is tempting because it touches upon something God put within you and has called you to. So it's not that the goal was evil, it was the method of getting there. Temptation is always destiny wrapped in a shortcut. It's the promise of what God said he would do to you and for you and through you and in you, but not going through the process of God to get there. 
And so we're to be like God. And so there was this rejection of God and this rejection of ourselves. And all of us continue to struggle with those two things to varying degrees. And maturity is the overcoming of those two lies. To the extent that you overcome those two lies is to the extent that you begin to move into maturity. Because to see him as he is, is to love him and to surrender to him. You will not run from God if you see him for who he is. All sin is built on a lie. And it's the truth that will set you free. And when you see God for who he is, you can't help but surrender. You can't help but worship. That any resistance within our own soul is because we don't see him clearly. And that's why we need to be on this journey of allowing the Lord to reveal his faithfulness so that we can place our faith in his faithfulness and that we grow in our surrender to him and we grow up in him. That's the goal. And so we're all struggling with this thing of our, our picture, our view of God and our view of ourself. And out of that flows this dilemma this interaction between the person, us, that we reject and the God, him, that we reject. Out of that flows this relationship, Christianity, and we question in those times, is it really worth it? Is God the rewarder of those who diligently seek him? And that is the battle of this passage here. So let's look at it. Psalm 73 says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. You ever been there? He, he tells us how it happened for him. He says, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from burdens, the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They close themselves with violence. From their calloused hearts come iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up the waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? What do, does the Most High even have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. In, they increase in wealth. You ever looked at the unrighteous, and wondered, God, why are they prospering? Lord, I, I, I look at certain political figures. i got to be careful here. I'm, I'm, I'm in danger of getting pol political, okay? I'm walking on thin. I can hear the ice cracking. I look at certain political figures and look at decades of, of law-breaking and, 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 and a dishonesty and scandals for decades, and they seem to get away, from, get away with it. It's because God's mercy is different than our mercy and God gives us time to repent. But if we're not careful, we can look at those things and we can begin to think, well, then, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the, the unrighteous who live the carefree life. So listen to what he says. So he starts the psalm, verse 1, surely God is good to Israel, but mid, midstream he says in verse 13, the same word, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. You see, always wrestling with this thing. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Halfway through, he's saying, but surely I've been pure in heart in vain. 
Sure, it's not even worth it. God, what's going on here? He's in, he's in the fire. He's going through a trial. He's going through hardship. It seems like his, his life is caving around, down around his ears and he looks at people who are mocking God and scoffing and not faithful and compromising. And he looks at them and they compromise. And he's thinking, God, what, what's the deal with this thing? And so he's coming to the wrong conclusion. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. See how he's believing a lie. He said, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. So he's saying that I had this internal battle. I didn't speak it out. I didn't say it to people because I would have betrayed your children. But I was thinking it. <laughs> he said, I was wrestling on the inside with this whole thing. And he goes on to say, when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive unto me. And then verse 17, I love this. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. He had to get in the presence of God. Once he got into the presence of God... He had the perspective with which to really understand life. We've got to be so very careful. You've got to be careful the attitude and the mood you are in when you come to conclusions. There are things we need to hold loosely. You ever been told not to write a letter late at night? In this day and age, it's really dangerous because you can push send used to be you had to drop it in the mailbox. It gave you a little time to, you know, think things through. But in this day and age, you can type it up and just push send, and then the next day you get up and you reread it and you're horrified. Oh, no. Is there any way to retrieve that? Uh-uh. It's because you've got to be careful. When your mind is weary and you've been after a hard, long day, you don't respond to things at those times. We need to get in the presence of God. He said, I got into the sanctuary. And the presence of God is not only what we need to live for, it's what we need to live from. It's the perspective. It's, that's the only place we really see things clearly when you're in his presence. You ever been troubled about something and you get in God's presence and what seems so big then really doesn't matter once you get into his presence? I remember when I was a real young guy, youth pastoring back in the mid-80s, and uh, I would pick up these teenagers at 6 a.m. all summer long, and we'd go pray at the church. And uh, we had this little move of God down in Ottumwa, Iowa. And uh, I remember I'd get out. I'm not a morning person by nature. I'd get up, and I'd be picking these kids up because none of them could drive. I'd drive all over town in this beat-up church van and pick them up. And I remember just feeling irritated picking them up. But by, when I'm dropping them off, I, was, I couldn't care less. I mean, it could have took me till noon. Who cares? It's just, I, there was peace in my life because I'd been in the presence of God. That's why it's good to start your day with prayer. Get the right perspective. And so the psalmist said, he said, till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. It's the third surely that he gives us here in this psalm. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept up by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so you arise, O Lord. You will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, embittered I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a brute beast before you. Listen to that. 
He said, when, I, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was like a brute beast. He didn't have any discernment. He didn't have any wisdom. He was just going by his gut. He was driven by his, his, his passions and his lusts and his, his desires as a believer. Now, I know he was Old Testament, but Asaph was a worshiper, man. This guy, this guy was a man who knew how to live in the presence. We've got to be careful what we allow to encroach in our minds. He says, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And after your word, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth I, have nothing beside, I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish and you destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. He had this truth that God is good to those who are pure in heart. But that thing was challenged by his circumstances, by what he was going through. That thing was encroached upon his mind. And we, had to, we all have to fight the good fight of faith. Be careful the decisions you make in the midst of a battle. I had a mentor in the Lord, Roger Helley. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. He used to say, yeah, I worked for Roger for many years. He was a great leader. And uh, he used to say, God will never use discouragement to move you. He'll never use discouragement to call you on. In other words, don't resign when you're discouraged. Get through the discouragement so you can make the decision. Because that wrong perspective will cloud your vision and cause you to make wrong decisions. So the psalmist said, I had to get in the presence of the Lord. There was that challenge of his identity, his view of God, and then even, is it really that God is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him? Look at chapter 11 of Hebrews, verse, verse 1. This is called the faith chapter. Many of you are familiar with this chapter. It's a wonderful chapter. It starts with this famous verse. verse. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for, and certain of what we do not see. That is faith. It's being sure of what we hope for. Uh, here's another version of the NIV. I'm reading in the NIV as well. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. It is what the ancients were commended for. That word ancients is presbyterios. It's the elders or those who have gone before. And the reason that this particular translation calls them the ancient because he begins to launch into the patriarchs. He gives us the history of these men and women of faith. That's why this passage has been called the Hall of Faith. So look at what it says, verse 3. By faith we understand the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what is, of what is visible. By faith Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith he still speaks even though he is dead. That's a powerful statement. We don't have time to get into that this morning, but faith will give your voice, will give you a voice after your passing. There's something about this passage that talks about longevity of life beyond your physical existence. 
That's why it gets into the great cloud of witnesses. Those who have gone on before become part of the great cloud of witnesses. Now listen to what he says. He goes on. And uh, Cain, by faith he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offering, and by faith he still speaks even though he is dead. Verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away before before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And then verse 6, listen to this verse. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe two things. That he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. That little verse, verse 6, is as much if not more the biblical definition of faith than verse 1. Faith, it, verse 1 says, faith is the confidence of things hoped for and the assurance of things not think, seen. In other words, when you have faith, you have a knowing in your heart that I've already, I already possess the future. I already have the thing that's promised. I have a confident assurance. It settles it in my heart. I have it internally before I seize it externally. That is faith. But here in verse 6, he elaborates. He really gets down to the foundation. He says there are two things that make biblical faith biblical. It validates your faith. Number one, you've got to believe that he exists. But that alone does not constitute biblical faith. There's a whole lot of people that believe God exists, but they don't surrender to the God that they believe exists. The reason they don't surrender to him is because they're missing the other element. The other, the other necessity is that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And when we really believe that, then we live for him because we understand it's worth it. And that is the very thing that the psalmist that we just read about, Asaph in Psalm 73, was wrestling with. Is it really worth it to serve God? Does God really reward those? Paul would put it this way in Galatians chapter 6. Do not be deceived. I believe it's verse 7. Do not be deceived. God shall not be mocked. What a man sows, he will reap. Now we look at that often as the spanking verse, you know, as the, the negative. A lot of times the way we read that, we look at it, from the negative, and so we don't want to put it on our refrigerator, but it's as much a promise for good as it is a warning to obey. Because he said, if you sow to the Spirit, from the Spirit you will reap eternal life. And when you have that as a firm conviction in your life that God is the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him, it will keep you in the fight. It's the great motivator. It's not good enough just to believe that he exists. In what form do you believe he exists? It's not good enough to believe there is a God. What kind of character does he have? Is he truly good? And is he the rewarder of those who diligently seek him? And the flip side is, is he the discipliner? Is he the one that meets out consequences to those who spurn his laws, his precepts? The answer is a resounding yes, he is. What a man sows, he will reap. That is known as the law of the harvest. But here's the catch. 
There is a personal, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving Lord of the harvest that oversees the laws of the harvest. God is the one enforcing this thing. The justice of God that holds the scales of human behavior in history. And he's always balancing those scales. Romans 13 says it's the job of authority to commend those who do right and to punish those who do wrong. Well, God as the ultimate authority will never shirk his responsibility. God is personally involved in human experience on a mass scale. He's watching. The psalmist said that the pagans say, does God really know? Will he even see? And the answer is yes. And so when God is watching our behavior, when we walk in an awareness of that and we understand that God is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him, it keeps us engaged, it keeps us in the fight. Because the battle of your faith is this thing where we latch onto a promise and we don't see movement. And we begin to question, God, you know, what's the deal here? Did, did, did I, was, I, was I scammed? Did I misplace my trust? Did I have a wrong interpretation? Was that a, a, a wrong prophetic word? Did it, was it a wrong interpretation of your written word? And we struggle with that thing. But that puts the, the weight on the wrong thing. It puts it on us, our ability to subjectively interpret both prophetic words and the Bible, when ultimately our faith is not in our ability to interpret. I'm telling you, I've wrestled with this, because I'm a man that firmly believes in the prophetic. The prophetic has guided my life for decades I can tell you the craziest stories of words from the Lord that gave me clarity to do one thing and not do another. That I was going in one direction, feeling this was the Lord, and the Lord showed me, and it turned me. And I, I'm so glad because the Lord saved me from heartache. And I can also tell you times where I felt a prompting and ignored it, and I, it wasn't pleasant. I firmly believe in the prophetic. I wouldn't know how to pastor without it. But here's the thing. In a church like ours, there's always the danger of faith fatigue, of latching our, our faith onto a prophetic promise. And when we don't see movement, we can begin to get weary and begin to think, man, did I, was, was, that a, was that a true word? Was that a false word? Was my interpretation of that wrong? And it undermines our faith. But ultimately, it's because in that scenario, we have our faith in the wrong thing. My faith is not in the prophecy. My faith is in the word and in the person of God. You see, God is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And whether I have a wrong interpretation or not is largely irrelevant because of the goodness of God. He's a good father, and he's going to lead me on, and he's going to correct me, and he's going to show me things. I don't have to be all freaked out, like, oh man, what if I have this wrong? I've got a good father. He's fathering me well. I can rest in that. And even if I'm diligently seeking him based on a promise that I've misinterpreted, I'm still going to be rewarded for the heart behind it, And even though I may have had a wrong mindset in latching onto a promise. I'm not talking about error, okay? 
But I'm talking about we go after promises and we, we, we hear the word of the Lord and these things. And, and as a prophetic church, as a praying church, as a, as a church that has, has uh, really pursued these things, there are things that we're carrying. There are promises the Lord has made to me some 25, 30 years ago that I have yet to see come to fruition. And I've struggled with that and I've thought, Lord, did, did I miss you? Did I hear you wrong? Was, was this not really you? Was, did I, was I presumptuous? I remember way back in Bible school. I was, when I was, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, just a young guy, about, about 15 years ago. And uh, so, well, and uh, so I was struggling because I was in Bible school. The Lord told me to go. I didn't have the money to go. They said, if you can come with the down payment, you can pay it as you go. And uh, man, it just, it was a test of my faith. And I remember there were times where I was going to be kicked out the next day and money would come in the mail. Uh, it was just crazy stories where I would have, uh, you know, uh, notes taped to things and I'd open it up and there was exact amount of money that nobody knew about that I needed to pay that next payment and just those kind that journey and I wouldn't trade it for anything that was those are exciting times but I struggled because I also knew other people in Bible school that were saying well you know God called me and he's going to take care of it and I watched them get kicked out of school for not paying their school bill also had a job and they didn't they were living by faith <laughs> And so was I, but I was putting my faith to work. Faith has works. And I, was, I had a job. I just didn't pay enough to pay off my bill. So I did my part, and God did. God came through gloriously. But I would struggle with that and think, I, I, these mind games, you know, what makes you think, Dave, that you're the exception to the rule? And it was that, that battle. But ultimately, our faith is not in the promises. Our faith has to be in God, the promiser. And that's what gives us stability. Now I want to run through a couple of verses real quick here. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. Listen to what he says here. Tell you what, jump down to Let's jump way down to verse 32. We're going to have to jump down there. He says, and what more shall I say? He's gone through these, these, these great patriarchs, the, the, uh, the ancients, as that one translation calls them, the ancients that have gone before us. By faith, uh, they passed through the Red Sea, verse 29. By faith, verse 30, Jericho fell. Verse 31, Rahab welcomed and was not killed by faith. And then verse 32, what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what had been promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames, the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women who received back their dead, raised to life again. Now these, that, that little snapshot, verse, verse 32 through 35a, halfway through 35, 
is what we really think of when we think about faith. These are the heroes. This is, you know, David, the great warriors, people. Uh, Daniel, shut the mouths of lions. These are people who, they, they lived their life, they proclaimed a promise, they preached the promises, and they manifested them in their lives. They w- broke into, into victory and people could see, wow, these, these people live by faith because they received what they declared. And we can see the fruit of it in their life. Surely that was a word from the Lord because they said they'd be delivered and they stepped into that deliverance. Look at this. And those are the people that we salute and those are the people we aspire to be. And that is legit stuff. We need to be those kind of people and believe for those things and contend for those things. But halfway through the verse he says this, there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so they might gain an even better resurrection. You see, there's people who are able to receive their deliverance. Those are the ones we look at and we we put on a pedestal as the people of faith. And they are some of the people of faith, but they're not the only people of faith. Because there's this other category of those who didn't receive, they refused. And it's a fascinating thing because a little later on, there's, there's two groups of people that didn't receive. There's, there's the people that did receive, and then there's two groups of people that didn't receive. There's those who consciously refused and those who were denied and didn't understand what was going on. Let's look at that in the last verse here of this chapter. Look at verse 39. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. See, this is a different group of people. It's not that they refused. It says, yet none of them received what had been promised. They were commended for their faith, number one. Their faith was legit. It wasn't wasn't presumption. It wasn't naivety. It wasn't gullibility. These weren't people to be pitied that got strung along with some false teaching and ended up shipwrecked. These are people who had real deal faith. They stood for things in God. And it says, but they didn't receive the promise. These were real promises. They weren't misled. They weren't given a false prophetic word. Or they didn't, they didn't misinterpret some passage in Scripture which led them astray. It was real faith and a real promise, yet God, the one who gave them the faith and even made the promise, did not give it to them. He denied them for a purpose. And this is, this is where things get really dicey. This is the real dilemma for us as believers. What do we do with that? What do we do with a God who will make a promise and then deny us the fulfillment? And and it's not a breach of divine integrity. God is not breaching his integrity. What he's done is he's made a promise that you and I don't understand that the, the fulfillment of that promise is beyond the grave. It's beyond the circumstance. And it's a better promise for these. Because what he's saying is, look look at how he puts it. He says, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. It was real, since God, the one who made the promise, had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. It's the same scenario of those who 
refused. Look at verse 35 again, the, the second half. There were others who were tortured. What is torture? Torture is the use of pain to manipulate behavior. When someone's tortured, what they, somebody else is inflicting pain on them, whether it's emotional, mental, it's, it's physical. The, 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 some enemy is leveraging pain to manipulate your behavior, to get you to act differently. And all hell came against these people. They were tortured, yet they stood their ground and they said, I will not give in. I refuse my deliverance. I don't even understand that. I just know the text says that. But there are times where people are under the gun and they consciously understand a principle that I want you and I to get this morning. And the principle is this. Sometimes it calls for us to lay down our deliverance and roll over our investment. There's something, it's like our our faith, our believing has achieved, it, it, it stepped into an ability to receive something from God that we can say no to. And it's a good thing. That God has given us a breakthrough and there's, there are those who consciously understood, I could take this or I could roll it over and give it to the next generation and the inheritance the breakthrough, the victory will be even greater because it's visited on the next generation. Listen to how he puts it. So they might gain an even better resurrection. I don't know how resurrection can be better except that more people are involved. Here's the thing, as I've read this over the last few days, I, I've just wondered how many times have I judged believers that stood and declared things in faith and then didn't see their breakthrough. And I've pitied them as, oh, gullible, naive. Oh, I guess they got led astray. And I pity them while heaven is honoring them and saying, it's those people of whom the world is not worthy. They consciously understood. Anybody ever read Reese Hall, Intercessor? Reese Hall. He was he, he, a tremendous intercessor, that's the name of the book, and uh, it's a great book, but one of the, one of the big, great trials of his life, and it, in the condensed book, you don't know as much, you've got to read some other stuff about his life external to the book, and you realize this happened more than most people realize. He would make a declaration of something that's going to happen, and it, it was when Reese Hall, he declared about his uncle being healed, on a, or it was, uh, it was someone that was going to be healed on a certain day. And when it didn't happen, it was shook. And the Lord spoke to him and said that, that when he didn't get healed, it was a token that he sowed that to the Lord. And he began to see breakthrough after that. And it was this thing where his victory was sown and rolled over, reinvested. So there's those who refuse their deliverance and roll it over to the next generation. And then there's those who are denied. That's the hard one. Because you're not even in on it. But when that happens, God is giving us a greater resurrection. There's something greater. Now how do we know which one we're in? Unless God consciously shows you that you have an opportunity to roll it over, we contend continually 
until we see breakthrough. Because our faith is in he who is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. There's some of you that are struggling with promises you've received. And I'm here to tell you this morning, because you've wrestled. Man, did, did I hear wrong? Did I get, did I get the promise wrong? Did I, you know, did I misinterpret that scripture? And I'm telling you, that's irrelevant. Because God is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's fine. Wrestle through that later. But only when you have that thing settled. That God is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You cannot seek God. You cannot pursue God without there being a reaping in the end. You cannot go after God without God rewarding you for that behavior. And that's what your faith is in. Faith is believing he exists. And number two, that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Go ahead and stand. At the end of this passage, it rolls right into the next one. And it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. What it's saying is it's saying, listen, you, you have inherited all that those who have gone before have given their sweat, their blood, their tears. Some of them actually rolled over their reward in time so that you could enter in on it. And he's saying, with that in mind, listen, God, I believe God's giving them a little picture. He's letting them look in on things. What I told you happened in Korea. When several people in the meetings, Catherine and Christopher and one of the, one of the defectors, they, they heard, they, they sensed the great cloud of witnesses looking in on the meeting. It's because they have an investment. And the Lord is saying, I'm going to allow them to watch. And the, and, and the writer is saying, listen, they're watching and they have a vested interest. They paid a price for where you're at. So throw off not only the sin, but even the things that easily entangle. And run the race. Run. Because they're watching. They paid a price for you to be where you're at. This thing's a relay race, and they've passed the baton to you. Run the race. From that perspective that he is the rewarder. I'm telling you, your righteousness is not in vain. Everything you do, every act of pursuing God will be rewarded by him. God sees it, nothing goes unnoticed, and he is using that for his purposes. Ultimately, it's not even about our life. It's about his purposes. And when we step into that, it frees us of struggling. What, you know, what did we interpret? It's, we are part of this great eternal history of God, of deliverance. And we're connected to the past generations and we're reaching into the future ones and we just need to do our part. You've been listening to a presentation from Heartland Church in Ankeny, Iowa. For more information about our ministry and its available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Thanks for listening.